Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the CapEx Podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Should poverty be defined by how much you earn, how much less you have than the national average, or something altogether more holistic, the myriad of interlocking factors from health to social capital to transport links that define someone's quality of life? That's the question that Conservative MP John Penrose grappled with in his landmark report, Poverty Trapped, released at the end of last year. As well as an acute diagnosis of the problems of measuring poverty purely in terms of income, it's full of workable policy solutions to help spread opportunity and raise people's quality of life without simply spraying money about from Whitehall and hoping for the best. I caught up with John earlier this week to discuss some of his ideas, including one housing policy which he says could be the biggest single moment of wealth creation since the Second World War. Well, John, thank you so much for being with us on the CapEx podcast. We're here to talk about a report that you wrote at the end of last year called Poverty Trapped. It's a very kind of expansive report, covers a lot of policy areas. But first of all, I think we should sort of set our terms. So one of the things you talk about in the intro to the report is that we've kind of got the definition of poverty a a bit wrong. The generally accepted one, I think, is sort of 60% of of median income. Um, You say in the report that poverty seems quote, stubbornly immune to the huge amounts of time and taxpayers' money which we're throwing at it. But, I mean, how, how mistaken are we here in the UK about the real state of both poverty and inequality? How bad or how good do you think it, it is in reality? It's a really central question. And I think the answer is that um, there's an awful lot we need to do. So I don't want anyone to get the impression that I'm saying that everything in the garden is rosy. It really isn't. Um, but the problem with it is that, as you say, because embedded in our thinking, embedded in our legislation, embedded in our political debate, is this notion that poverty is the same thing as how much bigger your pay packet is than mine, um, relative income, as you rightly pointed out. That kind of twists the whole debate. It, It distorts the debate. And it basically means that the answer to income inequality is to tax you a bit more and to give some of those taxes to me in benefits. And that doesn't actually fix the underlying problems, the causes of poverty, and, all, and what we've ended up doing, therefore, you know, for the last half a century at least, is treating the co- is treating the symptoms, not actually trying to solve the underlying causes of the thing. And as a result, you know, here we are, we're 70 years into the modern welfare state since it was first set up, over 70 years since Beveridge's famous report that sort of set out the terms of that. And while the welfare state's been brilliant 
over that period of time at dealing with all sorts of other major problems, major social problems to do with um, you know, serious long-term long health issues. The country as a whole is you know, not perfectly healthy, but a healthy life expectancy is miles longer than it was 50, 60 years ago. Um, dealing with uh, um, uh, inflation, even though at the moment it's going up, but on average inflation is a much less serious problem than it was 30, 40 years ago. Mass unemployment, same thing, solved, you know, solved or hobbled an awful lot of those problems. But the one thing that's still going is poverty after 70 years, after billions and billions of pounds of welfare spending and benefits and all these things. And I think we've got to say, you know, why are we, why have we, why has it worked on everything else mostly? Um, and why is it still not working on this? So we, we, we need to rethink. And the fundamental thing is here, as I said, and as you pointed out right at the start, we're treating symptoms, not causes. But how, what do you think that looks like? Because we've had MPs, I think Ian Duncan Smith among them, who have tried to redefine how we think of poverty. Um, we could talk about absolute poverty being a certain income level or something, but there's there's this competing idea of a kind of minimum acceptable standard of living. I mean, are these just uh, kind of repeating the same error that you're talking about of basically seeing it as a income and outgoings thing rather than uh, all the other things you mentioned in well, this report, I, such as health and education yeah, and transport I, I, and absolutely right. social? So, 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 so m money matters. Clearly, you know, a, a basic mi minimum level whatever that number is and that's you know there's an entire industry of people out there st studying this and statisticians and sociologists so so money you, you can't just pretend that money doesn't matter it does but you're right all these other things matter too so um uh, do you have a long-term health condition can you l minimize your chances of developing one in later life because if you get seriously ill that will certainly push your income down and it'll, it'll put you into all sorts of problems with poverty even though it's got nothing to do with your, your job on the day you get ill, not necessarily. Um, so health, yes, health matters. But yes, also all sorts of other things to do with emotional resilience. So most of us during the course of a, of a lifetime will get a few knocks um, you know, from, you know, from just life in general. So you know, maybe, maybe a, a relationship or a marriage splits up, maybe you lose a job, and maybe you get a, a serious disease, maybe temporarily, maybe over a long period of time. It could, could be mental illness, for example, which is hard to treat. Um, all of those things can happen. Now, can we equip you with the, the tools and the support around you, which is much more than just a benefits check each week, um, mm. in order to maximise your chances of, A, not being knocked for six, when, not if, some of these things happen to us, because they, they happen to most of us at some point in your life. Um, or uh, if you can't, you know, so you, you sort of try and minimise the, the damage that that inflicts, but also maximise your chances of bouncing back. And obviously, some things you can't back, bounce back from. If you get a very serious disease, that's, yeah, that's yeah. but but lots of things you can deal with if you're properly prepared. So giving people the tools, and the attitudes, and the education, and all those things in order to be capable of bouncing back and grabbing opportunities when they come past. Yeah. That 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 isn't that isn't in any of the existing definitions. Yeah. If you um, and, and that's what we've got to sort of start thinking about more broadly. We'll come off the the baseline stuff about definitions and talk about some of your specific policy proposals. But I think one thing that strikes me is the way that we're, we're talking about it is it's very broad. Is, it, is there a risk that it almost defies definition, that actually yeah. coming up with a metric for something that's so all-encompassing? It's basically asking someone, what's your life like? Yeah, you know? it, it, exactly so. And, and I think you can, you can get over-obsessed about definitions if you're not careful. So you're absolutely right. Um, some people find it helpful in fact not to think about poverty but to think about prosperity 
as the opposite. You know, if, if it's all mm. working well, um, what does prosperity look like? And then you can sort of define poverty as, as you know, the opposite of that, or you know, the 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 other end of the spectrum from that. But ultimately, uh, definitions, yes, they matter because, as you say, we, we've been thinking about poverty in the wrong way, as a way of defining the problem. But actually, that all that does is helps you draw the line in one particular place or a different one. And, and we can argue until we're blue in the face about where to draw the poverty line. Mm. Actually, that doesn't get a single person out of poverty. What you've got to start doing is saying, regardless of the technocratic definitions, we can leave the sociologists um, and the statisticians and the accountants to, to figure those out. It's an important question, but let, let's not sort of get too hung up on it. And let's instead start saying, how do we equip people with the skills and with the opportunities um, with the tools for life that will maximise their chances of not being in poverty or getting there, getting out of it if they do end up there. And that's that's a practical question, yeah. and one which doesn't ha- we don't have to get obsessed by definitions for. Sure. Are, are there countries that you look at, I'm thinking, for example, the Nordic countries, mm. famously very high living standards quite across the board, which you think we can take inspiration from particularly, or that so, you took inspiration from when you were yeah, so, writing the report? Well, so, so the, the Nordics are often held out um, as an example, but they're held out um, often by people who um, are still sort of stuck in the mindset of it. What matters is is relative income, and am I at sixty percent of median income or not? Um, some Nordics are quite good, um, but actually, what I think we need to be looking at is um, which countries have got um, the best social mobility. So that's that's you know, which countries have the best opportunity. So it shouldn't matter where you start in life. It doesn't matter if you if you if you if your parents are are, are dukes or dustmen. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter where you start, what's your chances of getting out of the station in life that you were born into um, and you know, moving up or down the ladder, being able to set your own path, choose your own life and choose a life path that suits you and which will make you happy. And and almost by definition if you're if you're happy or unlikely to be in poverty, mm-hmm. um, Although what makes people happy is very, very different. Some people define it in terms of being very, very rich. But other people say, actually, I don't want to be rich. I want to, I, I want to work in an NGO um, and, and help, you know, and help uh, um, people in, in other areas. And I don't particularly, I, I don't want to be paid a you know, tiny amount, but a modest income is okay because all these other things matter to me too. Yeah. So, so yeah, the other countries, there are some other countries which are really good at um, spreading the opportunity right the way around the, the, the their society oddly um that that's their countries i think uh, i think denmark's pretty good at this so i forget if it's denmark or norway one or the other it's, it's in the it's, i've listed that in the report but australia um is good at it canada's quite good at it too so the it's important um that we don't just focus on the income equality we look at the opportunity equality um and if you've got a country that can do both yeah. um then then at that point that's that's really the people we should be aiming to to copy and exceed it's a kind of classically tory message as well isn't it the I mean, where, where would you sit you situate yourself in terms of your party's kind of philosophical intellectual oh, traditions <laughs> if that's not too broad because there's bits of this i could say that were quite thatcherite almost yeah. and others you could, i don't know you could say joseph chamberlain or disraeli or you know there's all sorts of different strands here you're right i mean i, I i'm one of the one of the beauties of about the conservative party and the tory tradition is that is that we believe in values rather than in ideology, um, and and you're absolutely and that means that you can reinterpret and reapply the values which last forever, but you need to reapply them to every successive decade or generation set of problems. And I think that's what we've got to do with poverty today. So you're right. Some of this stuff about equalising opportunity 
um, might sound quite Thatcherite. Um, but it might also sound quite Disraelian because it's all about one nation and lev- and it also sounds quite Johnsonian because it's all about levelling up. Indeed, we, we um, will come on to so, that. So, 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 so a, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's sort of. Um, I, I think that what we've got to do is is not get too tied up in the historical levels. But you're right. It is firmly in the tradition of conservative values. But yeah. now it's up to us to reinterpret them for today's problem. Yeah, I mean, pol- us policy wonks and politicians are always talking about putting things in a modern context. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely right. There you are. But, uh, I mean. It, it, it is a very apt bit of work for the problems that we're facing now. I mean, you wrote this in, I believe, in sort of winter of last year. Um, or yeah, 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 yes, I, I guess so. It came out back end of last year, yeah. although um, chunks of it chunks of it started a year before. Um, right. but, but yeah, it, it sort of took a while in gestation. So yeah. yeah, and things were, you could see the roots of things getting more difficult for people then. Yeah. But since that, this oh. report came out, it yeah. just seems to have got far, far worse. I mean... When you look at what the government has done in response to cost of living so far, I mean, where, looking at what you've spoken about in the, in the report, do you think the government's done doing the right things and where do you think it could be going further? So, so, so you're right. I mean, levelling up and dealing with the cost of living crisis at the moment um, are all sort of part of the same problem, aren't they? Um, and actually, the government's done some very sensible... I mean, it's been battling with headwinds because it's had to deal with a pandemic and all those other things as well, so, so fair play. But where it started is um, mainly with government spending. Um, and the thing about it is, post the pandemic, there isn't nearly as much you know, taxpayers' money to go around. Taxes are already quite high. The you know, yeah. borrowing's already high. So we, there, isn't an, there isn't a huge amount of extra money to start dishing out on public works of one kind or another. Um, Rishi's already tried to do some things, like, for example, the help with energy bills. Um, targeted at some of the you know, people in, on, in sort of different council tax bans and that sort of stuff. Very sensible. But we're not going to be able to do a huge amount using taxpayers' money given what the overall economy is looking like at the moment. So we've got to look elsewhere. And that's where, to your point about you know, Thatcherism, actually some supply-side reforms, and I mean not just economic supply-side reforms, but I mean social supply-side reforms, opportunity-creating, um, agency-creating reforms to the way our society works to make sure that everybody gets that chance to you know no matter who their parents were to sort of you know break out from what the station of life they're born into that's the thing which we need to do and there's a whole series of things you're right in this report i'm proposing on everything to do with um education where actually parts of our education system are miles better than they were you know the academization program and and schools are are, you know there's still further improvement to go but it's definitely on an upward program but you know, there's all sorts of problems with FE and HE and the distinction between the two um, when you get out of school, which we need to do. There's much more we need to do on early years and early interventions, particularly for um, families that need more support. And then there's a whole bunch of other ideas to do with things like, um, like, like tax equalisation and, uh, and, 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 uh, and dealing with inheritance tax. So yeah. um, you're right, it's a broad problem. It needs some broad answers. Yeah, uh, but those are the sorts of things we, which we can and should be looking at. Absolutely. Let's get into <clears> some of the, the proposals, the specific proposals in, in your report. One that really struck me was about university degrees. And we had a, mm. a paper last week from the Tony Blair Institute saying that 70% of... We should be looking to get 70% of people into higher education. Now, it's often said, oh, well, higher education isn't just universities. But I remember when Blair first came up with the 50%, he specifically said more people should have the benefit of a university education but what you're proposing one of the things you're proposing here because all these sections have various little various policy things yeah. is standardizing 
degrees. Can you just explain to our listeners what this would involve? So basically, it, it's a bit like turning degrees into similar to A levels. So. Uh, yeah, not a two not, one is a two one is a two one. Basically, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's not a. It's not a. It, it, it's a, It's not dumbing them down to the level of A levels. Not that A levels are dumb. No, no, no. But, but, yeah. but it, it's, it's making them equivalent. So, I mean, just on the, on the point about the, the Blair Institute's proposal for seventy percent. I mean, I, I I think that his original proposal for fifty percent was bonkers in the first place. Not because we don't need to improve skills in our population. We absolutely do. But the presumption that the only skills that matter. Um, are academic skills, yeah. and those are important, but they aren't the only skills that matter. Um, it's just really way too narrow, and I think a bit snobbish, frankly. Um, and now he's doubled, or not doubled down on it, but he's gone from 50% now up to 70% now, and I just think that's repeating the same, the same mistake, because there's an awful lot of other skills that really matter, which aren't pure academic skills at all, and which we need to deal with. So on this particular example that you're, you're talking about, yeah, at, at the moment, the, the difficulty is that um, we assume in this country, and employers assume, and everybody assumes, um, that good universities are old universities. Um, and the older the university you went to, um, the more that people will think that your degree is better. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I'm afraid it should be the case that if I get a 2-1 in English literature or whatever from any university, that actually a 2-1 is a 2-1 is a 2-1. It doesn't matter if I get it awarded, awarded uh, it from Cambridge or from Essex or from Exeter or anywhere else. Um, that should be the answer, because that's what we apply for every other serious uh, qualification in this country. So an A-level, yeah, you don't go, a GCSE. you've got an Eton A-level or something. Yeah. Well, and, and, it would be, and if you think about it, um, you know, Eton's a really good example. Um, I hope you didn't go to Eton. I didn't. No, no, neither of us did. We're, we're, we're in the clear. Um, <laughs> I but, won't tell our editor-in-chief. If you think about it, if you had a system that says there's an Eton A-level that no one else can take, yeah. and it gives you, and if you get an, an A at... In, at A-level from Eton, that's a higher level qualification than anybody else from any other school can have. And it get, equips you to get better jobs and a better chance of getting into a university than anybody who's been to any other school. Um, everyone will say that's monstrously unfair. That's, that's just wrong. It's just you know, socially inequitable. And yet that's what we do with university degrees. So all I'm saying is, look, universities at the moment say that they'd like to. There are actually mechanisms for what they call moderating degree standards between universities, but no one seriously claims that they work brilliantly well at the moment. And I'm just saying, look, if you think this is the right thing to do in principle, and I think you're right it is, let's make sure they work properly. So you still get to decide who comes to your university, you still get to decide what goes into your curriculum for English literature or chemistry or whatever it might be. You still get to um, you know, set all those things. So we're not trying to infringe on, on academic freedom, um, but if you say, and you are right to say, that the standard of degrees ought to be equivalent, mm -hmm. as they are for every other serious exam, then you guys need to show that you're doing that and prove it so that if I'm a, an employer, um, I can, if I get someone with a 2-1 from a less fashionable or younger university, I know that they are every bit as good as the person with a 2-1 from an ancient, long-established university. And what that does, it means that somebody who didn't quite get into their first choice university ended up going to something which is further down their list of, of, of choices when they, when they applied because they bogged up their A-levels. They, they, they were ill on exam day, their pet had died, their parents had, you know, there was something going on at home and it meant they, they underperformed. Um, it means that that bad day when they're 18, which means they don't go to the university they wanted to go to, doesn't reflect on their employment prospects when they're 21 and 25 and 30. It gives you a second chance. It says, look, 
even though I didn't get into the university I wanted to get into, if I work like stink, I can still get myself that 2-1 or whatever it is, mm. and I'm on just the same level playing field when it comes to applying for jobs as someone who's gone to Oxford or Cambridge. That's quite a powerful kind of motivational thing as well to think that, if you, you know, once you get there, it's like, I've still got this within my power. I've still got it within so. my and, and not only that, also, if you think about it from the university's point of view, um, it means that um, all those debates about finding skilled working-class students who are bright working-class students, who, who how, how do we get more of them to university? It's a sort of perennial uh, question and refrain that gets asked. That's kind of self-solved if you introduce this, because if you are the admissions department for any university, it doesn't matter where, um, you aren't just interested in finding the brightest um, pupils with the, with the highest qualifications. You're also interested in finding the brightest um, pupils who may not have quite performed to their maximum when, they, when they're applying. Because pretty soon, if you've got standardised degrees, everyone's going to start um, dividing the standardised degree grades that they produce at the end of three years by the incoming A-levels and saying, well, which one's, which one's adding most value? Mm. Which one's you know, giving most education to their pupils? And all of a sudden, universities that add more value because they start off with people who've got Bs and Cs rather than straight As and yet still produce um, you know, uh, you know, uh, graduates with two ones, they're adding more value. And at that point, people start to go, oh, hang on, well, what, what are they doing that's so brilliant? So you can see how the whole thing starts to improve what universities do and how they behave, and it's helpful for um, clever but uh, you know, not, not, quite as, not quite as well qualified 18-year-olds, um, often you know, not always, but many of whom may very well be people who've had a few less advantages. Um, at Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we'll jump onto some other policy I'm, things. I'm going on for too long. There's so <laughs> many. No, not at all. I should say to our listeners, this is about sort of 80 odd pages, this report. So yeah, there's there, there, a lot I, to get, your, to I, get I, stuck I, into. I promise your listeners um, that there's also a handy executive summary at the no, end, which, which, is, which yeah. is about 10 or 11 pages. Which I definitely <laughs> didn't crib my questions for. Um, so one thing that I'm, CapEx has always been really interested in is planning reform and housing. I'm personally, I've been quite disappointed with what started off as looking like quite a radical 
change the planning system. I think Boris Johnson said something like it would be the most radical change in a generation. And it seems to be watered down and watered down. You have lots of not necessarily discrete ideas, connected ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, street votes is one yep. where, which is essentially letting people in the area decide on design code and you know what can get built in the area. Um, another one is about building up, so we build on top of existing things. And the one I'm interested in though is, is what you. Well, I'm interested in all of them, but um, yeah. one that particularly struck me that I hadn't heard before is about. Um, planning permission reform so just explain this so your basic idea is that the clock starts ticking as soon as you buy land with planning permission you oh, have see, to kind yeah. of get building yeah so, so this, this is to this, stop this developers is, hoarding land basically yeah, this is this is an idea called make builders build um, and, and so you're absolutely right so th- you get people saying look um builders or developers um get planning permission and, and then they dribble out the build um, and they and they release a small number of houses over a long period of time because they don't want to drive down the local um, the, the local price right. by sort of flooding the market with too much supply. Um, now, a bunch of developer. If there was a developer in this interview, they, they'd be sort of frothing at the mouth and, and sort of you know very upset at this calumny. But it's a widespread criticism, um, and my I guess this idea is aimed to solve that problem. And if and if the developers aren't doing it, then they won't mind um, this idea either. Um, but for those who are concerned about it, I think it probably would help. And what it basically says is, look, um, at the moment when land gets planning permission, or if people hope it might get planning permission in future, so you get sort of hope speculation value um, being built into the price, um, that's when most of the value creation happens. Um, so you, know, you, you take an acre of farmland, depending on where it is, if you give it planning permission to build houses, it, the value of that thing can go up by 10, 50, even 100 times in some places. Um, and actually the amount of value that's then added once the planning permission has been granted after that, when you actually start you know, building something, actually putting bricks one on top of each other, is relatively speaking tiny. So an awful lot of the value is in this speculation value, this hope value, and it's created by the prospect of planning permission. So all I'm saying is, look, when you get planning permission, on the day that planning permission is granted, um, rather than having uh, community infrastructure um, contributions to the local infrastructure, which um, builders usually have to give to the local council, or Section 106 agreements, which are another version of the same thing. Rather than those happening and saying, I'm going, I promise you, local council, if I'm the developer, I promise you that I will build a roundabout over there and another wing on the school over here, or whatever it might be, or I'll give you the money to do it when I finish building. Instead, what you say is, no, the day that you get planning permission, you write the check that day. And that means, if you're the developer, you've got a an upfront cost and you've got to build and sell quickly in order to recoup that cost and it means you can't dawdle the clock is ticking you've got a sort of financial um, you know, meter that starts running on that day and it just means that everybody has the right incentive to get a flipping move on and start building to, to get there to, to, to recoup the cash but it also means that the council has the money to build the new doctor's surgery, to upgrade the road, to upgrade the drains, whatever is necessary to do, it gets that money on day one. So you, you get a community that's being built, not just a dormitory. Is there one of these reforms? I've mentioned three reforms mm-hmm. that you, you put in your housing session. So street votes, building up, which is essentially adding on to existing buildings and yep. planning permission. Is there one of those that you think would have a more radical effect on the market than others? Like, for example, I think street votes is a great idea. We know Michael Gove thinks it's a great idea because yeah, he's, he he's, he's kind of nick it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. But <laughs> it, just, is the, uh... it strikes me as one way it's quite reliant on a quite active mm-hmm. citizens to actually do it. So yeah. it might be something that is objectively a, a good idea, but that people are just like, oh, it seems like a bit 
a bit of a faff. Mm-hmm. I mean, so which of these do you think, you know, the government could basically come out and say, do within the next few months and would have start to have an effect quickly. You're right. I mean, street votes is a good is a good idea, but it's quite a sort of it's, it's hyper local. It's sort of street by street. Yeah. Um, the one that's really big um, is the thing you talked about just now: build up, not out. Um, mm. So that's in towns and cities. Um, and what that basically says is, if you want, if you, you know, the average the average height of British towns and cities at the moment outside city centres is roughly two stories tall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if you said to people, look, you can build up to about four stories, providing you stick with a local style guide, a local design code. So it's you're building things that look like the best of what's already there in your area. So you, you, you're building beautiful already, and you're not you aren't building high rise. This is this is the equivalent of a of a sort of a, a Regency or Victorian townhouse type kind of height. But you're building good-looking stuff where there is already something. Um, and if you do that and you adhere to that style guide, then you don't need any more planning permission. You, you still need to make sure it, it, it's, um, it, it satisfies you know, building regs to make sure it's safe, and you, and you can't do it if it's a listed building. Yeah. But other than that, you don't need planning permission. You can just get on with it. Yeah. Now, what that does is... On the day that Michael Gove announces that, if he if he if he's minded to do so, Michael, I hope you're listening. Um, on the day he announces that, what that means is that if you even if you just say it's only in towns and cities, not in countryside or anything like that, um, you've probably increased the amount of um, residential buildable sites permissioned in this country by about eighty percent in one go. Mm-hmm. And on a normal year, we permission about one or two percent. So in terms of a, a single moment of wealth creation, um, it's probably the biggest single announcement that any government will have made since the war. Mm. It's a huge piece of wealth creation. Anybody who currently owns any, any property would, yeah, providing it's not already a, a high rise or something like that, and would potentially be able to realize quite a big um, uh, uh, you know, benefit there. But what it would also mean is that you know, those wouldn't all get built in the next six weeks as people moved out and they sold to somebody who wanted to do the extension and build up or they got to retirement and decided that they wanted to downsize or they wanted to build a flat on top which they're going to live in and sell and sell flats underneath and that's their pension yeah over the next 10 15 years all that 80% of new buildable space would get built out built out so not only would the people who own those things get rich also what would happen is the cost of the individual properties would fall because the amount yeah. of extra property. So oh. whether to buy or to rent, that starts to go down immediately. And the really big problem um, isn't the whether or not you're making people who currently own properties rich. It's a question of whether or not you can make people who don't own properties um, make it affordable, either to rent or to buy. And that is the thing which I think will make the big difference and will be transformational if we do it right. Well, yeah, you've kind of answered what my next question was going to be there, which is what do you think the effect on house prices would be, notwithstanding all the kind of, you know, people talk about financialization of mortgages yeah. and that kind of stuff that has a big effect. But the other thing I want to say is that this is actually already happening. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in it because it's happening about two miles away from where I live in South Tottenham. Oh, yeah. They yeah. have Famous example. this design yeah. code. And mm. just for our listeners, I mean, if you Google CapEx South Tottenham, you'll find an article from a guy called Ben Southwood, yeah. who's brilliant on all this stuff. And it was because the Orthodox Jewish community there tended to have quite large families, they needed more space, and they basically went to the council and said, can we just build up? And, th- and if you look at the houses, they're, they're really, really nice. nice. Yeah. yeah they look good. And, and, and the, the thing about it is, if you, you know, we're, we're Tories, so we, we understand supply and demand. 
And if we increase the supply of housing by, as I said, up to 80%, and some of it will be in making two-story houses, in, uh, sort of two-bedroom houses into four-bedroom houses, and some of it will be um, turning a, a, a normal family-sized um, house into three two-bed apartments stacked, stacked on top of each other, you know, all sorts of different choices. But what will happen is the supply dramatically increases, the cost dramatically falls, um, and it doesn't matter if it's to rent or to buy at that point, because you just got the you just basically need to build an awful lot more boxes, and some of them will be to buy to buy, and some of them will be to, to rent. But the price starts to, starts to decline and become much more affordable, and that's one of the biggest single long term problems with the cost of living in this country. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I think we should talk about it even more than we already do. No, you're but, right. uh, the other thing on density, I think, just to mention, is that people always go, oh, you know, London's full, London's too full. London's something like half as dense as Paris, I think. Yeah, I mean, when people say, oh, London's terribly full, what they tend to look at is you know, right in the middle of, of, of London, so you know, inside the circle line. Um, but actually, most of London is, again, two stories, two stories. tall on yeah. average. Yeah. I live in an ocean of two-storey yeah. terraced housing. Yeah. And, it's and, just, and, and the thing about it is that yeah. if, you look at, if you look at other older towns and cities in Britain, you look at central York, you look at Bath, you look at places like that, they can look absolutely gorgeous at, on average, three or four storeys tall. Um, and that's just well, a great... Westminster itself yeah, is Westminster full is of seven or eight-storey yeah, exactly. places. Yeah. So, so, so you, yeah. can, you can have something that looks absolutely brilliant um, and is you know, not, not high-rise. Absolutely. Um, the other thing, another, another thing that's the government's kind of mooting it now is on on childcare. I mean, what would your prescription be? Would, would you think we should get rid of ratios altogether, or just change them so oh, they see. match other countries? Yeah, Are there other reforms? And one thing, one of the highest costs for nursery providers is rent. Yeah. So again, if we had planning reform, this all kind of there's a sort of virtuous circle to a lot of there, this there, stuff. There, there, there totally is a virtuous circle. You're right. So look, childcare really matters because. Um, it's one of the we were talking before about when we talk about what poverty really is we were talking about social mobility and, and opportunity and giving people a chance to break out from whatever they were born into when they when you know, from their parents um, child care is one of the essential bits that really matters for that because um, if you want to um, do a few extra hours work to earn a bit more money um, in your 20s or 30s when, you, when you're young if you're a young parent um, or if you are a single parent particularly if you're a single mum it's really, really hard if you don't have access to childcare to, you know, to, to, to try and better yourself financially, to get the promotion, to apply for the better job. So childcare matters. And at the moment, childcare in Britain um, is, um, well, it's managing to pull off a sort of triple, triple lock whammy. Um, it's marginally profitable. Lots of them are losing money and complaining about it all the time. And, you know, they're, they're not wrong to complain. It's, it's a very difficult industry to, to do well in. Um, and they're losing staff because they can't pay enough. Um, and our prices at the same time are something like the second worst or second highest in the OECD. New Zealand, I think, is yeah. the only country. So, so we're one of the most yeah. expensive countries in the entire OECD for the cost of this stuff. And yet, you know, the outcomes for British children um, are not any noticeably better or worse than most other OECD countries at all. So clearly, we are doing something really fundamentally structurally wrong. Um, mainly with the costs of this industry. I mean, you, you, if you manage to charge really sky-high prices, not make any money, and not pay your staff enough, your costs are too high in some in some respect or other. 
So we need to look at that. We can't compromise on safety or any of those sort of things. You've got to make sure that it's still a quality product. But other countries manage to do this an awful lot cheaper than we do. So what I'm asking for, and in fact, this is something which has been echoed by both Grazia magazine and by a campaigning organization called Pregnant Then Screwed, um, is saying, look, can we please examine all the costs? I mean, people automatically talk about the ratios of staff to, to, uh, to, to children, but that's, only, that's a big part of it, but it's, it's only part of it. Let's look at all those costs. You mentioned um, the, 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 the property costs, the rent costs earlier on. And let's work out how we can structurally um, make those costs cheaper by changing the regulatory um, framework that they're in without compromising the quality um, so that um, it's then more affordable for families who are struggling and who, and who want to take that extra shift or want to apply for that, that promotion or that, or that other job. It's a huge enabler of social mobility and opportunity, but only if we get this right. One of the things that links a lot of the reforms we've been discussing from universities, housing and, and childcare there is it doesn't necessarily, and you said this earlier on in our chat, it doesn't necessarily involve you know, shed loads of taxpayer money no. being going out of the, you know, or people coming to Whitehall Treasury with the begging bowl. Yeah. That said, quite a lot of the levelling up agenda the government has does involve Whitehall spraying out yeah. cash. I mean, how... How comfortable are you both kind of fiscally and philosophically with the idea that here's the central government, bid for your pot and it'll make your area better so, in some way? So, so yeah, within, within the bounds of, of, of sound money and yeah, not, not, not trashing the, the, the government's balance sheet and, and sort of you know, um, running up the nation's credit card, I've got no problem with a public works programme which is trying to say, you know, where out, what is holding back parts of the country outside the southeast. Um, which haven't grown as far or as fast or as successfully um, as London and, 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 the, and the home county. So in principle, that's entirely the right thing to do. I'm really happy that, the, that that's what an awful lot of government spending is trying to be tweaked towards. But the problem with it is it isn't going to be enough. If levelling up is just a public works programme, um, it will fail not because of trying to do the right things, but because it just won't have enough scale to it. And the good news about most of the ideas in this paper, in this poverty trap paper is that most of them don't cost the government a bean. So, for example, you asked me earlier on about, about, about um, changing the planning system. That won't cost anybody, well, it, it won't cost the government or ratepayers any money at all. It won't cost councils any money at all either. Um, you asked me earlier on about, about changes to university degrees. That won't cost anybody any money at all um, either. So there's a whole series of things which are opportunity-enabling social supply-side reforms in the sort of Thatcherite tradition, um, which... Uh, we could introduce which can go on top of what's already happening and because we are already you know, money is already tight and because the cost of living crisis and the pandemic is going to get tighter yeah. um, you know, so there isn't any spare money lying around down the back of a sofa anywhere um, so this is going to be the only game in town this is the only thing you can do and so it's the only thing which we must do what the biggest drain on public spending though maybe aside from state pensions is obviously the health service, mm. and costs just seem to go up and up and up to the point that people say the UK is becoming a you know health service with a country attached. Yes. Um, do you have a, what sort of what do you think are lowish cost changes that we could make to the way we deliver healthcare that could interact with this agenda you have to uh, to do you know with the quality life um, agenda if you like. Yeah. So, um, so, really important question, and it's one which. Um, 
which people, including me, are better at defining the problem than they are at coming up with the answers for. Because because we need to have a sort of proper um, society-wide um, discussion about this, I think. Because at the moment, um, the, the difficulty with the NHS is that it's actually, in most people's minds, including most politicians' minds, it's the National Hospital Service rather than the National Health Service. And any health professional um, will tell you that actually... You know, the, you know, the the old adage about prevention is better than cure comes from the from the from the medical profession, and they and they say yeah. it for a reason. You, you have a stat which is eighty percent of health problems aren't due to healthcare, but to underlying causes. Yeah. And, right. and, and, and that's actually not my stat. That's something yeah. which which is 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 um, put out by um, the government's public and uh, and health. Um, uh, I mean, is that things like um, nutrition, not yeah. enough exercise, yeah. so it's, poor quality it, housing? It, exactly right. It, it is about um, it's about things like good. Uh, good personal, social, um, health, and economic um, uh, uh, teaching at schools, so that you know how to avoid unintentional pregnancies, um, so that you are you understand the risks that you're taking when you if you um, take drugs or or drink too much, that you understand about nutrition, so that you know what the risks of either under you know, being too thin or, too, or 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 obese will cause you in health problems in later life. You can teach people an awful lot about how to how to live healthily and live well and live longer healthily as well. Um, and those aren't just good for your health and, having a, and, and being in better shape when you're, when you're in your 60s or your 70s or your 80s. Um, they are also better for the economy and they're better for poverty because there's nothing more likely to put you into poverty um, than if you um, have a serious health problem in your 30s or 40s or 50s and you can't work for either a year or, God forbid, for 10 years. Um, that will put most people into poverty, sure as eggs is eggs. If you can reduce the number of people by prevention, by public health, um, and by community health, rather than by treating the symptoms when they you know, when it's gone badly wrong and they have to go into hospital, again, it's treating causes, not symptoms. So it's all about healthy living yeah. um, and prevention um, before it gets to the stage where you actually have to go into a hospital and see someone dressed in a white coat. It strikes me as well it's better to inculcate good habits than to try and tax certain food products so that yeah. people then have less money to spend on things well, that they just generally like eating. Well, uh, well yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, if, if you, you can tax it all you like, but, it, it, but, but what that does is it, it actually just makes food more expensive for less well-off families. Yeah. Um, it, it, which, is, which, is a, you know, which is another... That, if you want to reduce poverty, that's a really good way of increasing it. Um, but also, you're right, it may be expensive... But if, you know, all of us, I, I, I really like the taste of chips. I, think yeah. absolutely, I, I really like the taste of crisps too. That's a popular Abs- opinion. Absolutely. Like yeah. um, the only thing that stops me eating them um, is because I, I know that if I eat too many of them, um, actually, you know, it'll, it'll be bad for my health in the, in the medium to long term. Uh, if, if it costs tuppence a bag of chips more for each bag, it wouldn't stop me buying the bag. Yeah. Um, and and that, that's, the, that's the thing which will have the... That, that kind of understanding um, and nudges um, on behaviour are the thing that will make the difference rather than tax. Sure. Uh, that's very much a uh, CAPEX-approved viewpoint, should say. <laughs> there we are. I didn't know. Um, John, we could, I mean, we could talk about this report till the cows come home. There's so many interesting policy proposals mm. in there. I would strongly encourage uh, our readers to get a copy of Poverty Trapped. You can just Google John's name and Poverty Trapped and uh, yep. lower it. And, and, I, and I promise that it is only 11 pages at the end. Yes, for the, the, for the executive <laughs> summary. summary. It's quite a detailed <laughs> summary. Um, but anyway, thank you very much for being with us. And thank you all, as ever, for listening. Uh, do tune in next week for another one of our topical editions of the CapEx podcast. And thanks very much.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.